want you guys to open your Bibles to the uh, Gospel Mark chapter 10 is where we're at. And uh, as soon as you guys open up to there, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to read the little passage that we're going to be studying here this morning. And then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this great story uh, that Jesus gives. It says this in verse 13 of chapter 10, Gospel Mark. It says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples then rebuked them. But then Jesus saw it, and he was indignant, and he said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so, God, we ask you right now that you would just help us understand what this means, uh, to not just simply learn information, but, God, that we pray that our hearts would be challenged, that there would be radical revelation given to us about what it means to be in your kingdom what type of people are the type of people that receive your kingdom so god i pray this morning that you would just move in our hearts stir up affections in our hearts to see what you've done to open the doors to that kingdom through your son jesus and god that we would become worshipers transformed to become worshipers here today so we commit this time in your hands and we pray these things in jesus name amen um, okay, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and I want to give you a real quick little update on what we've been looking at up to this point in sort of summary or synopsis. Uh, the larger picture of what Mark has been trying to do is he's been telling us a story. He's been gospeling. He's been communicating, proclaiming. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And what Mark's been doing as he tells us the good news or gospeling this great word is he's telling us in so many different ways the story of Jesus. And the way Mark has been doing this from the very beginning is he tells us these little stories, these little snapshots, or these little vignettes, or pericopes, or paragraphs, or ideas that arise throughout Jesus' life, and they become these object lessons of what Jesus is doing. But really, the story is always the same. In other words, the story of what will it look like when God becomes king. That's really the main theme of the entire Gospel of Mark. What will it look like when God becomes king? Who will be the people that will accept his reign? Who will be the people that will be impacted by his reign? Um, who will be those that will be pulling away from it? Who will be those that will find themselves uh, shockingly omitted from the kingdom? Because Jesus is going to point out there are those that will miss the kingdom altogether. And so the constant, ongoing retelling of the story or retelling of these themes in the story of the life of Jesus had to do with what does it look like when God becomes king. And so with that being said, we'll be taking a look at another story today. Uh, last week we saw the story of Jesus interacting with the scribes and Pharisees about the issue of divorce and remarriage. Jesus is asked a question about divorce, and instead of answering the question to the Pharisees who were asking about divorce, uh, directly answering the question about divorce, Jesus actually Ask them a question about marriage. And Jesus doesn't even talk about divorce until later when his disciples ask him. And immediately right after that or following this story that we'll be taking a look at, uh, that we took a look at last week about divorce and remarriage, Jesus, this, the Mark drops or deposits this story about Jesus and little kids right in front of us. In some ways, there's a lot of scholars that kind of debate as to the placement of this. Uh, that's not for us to do, but the reality is, is that Regardless of how, in some ways, it just kind of goes, uh, may even kind of feel unnatural in terms of the flow, talking about divorce, marriage, 
Uh, and then immediately shifting gears and talking about little kids coming to Jesus being rebuked, or Jesus rebuking his disciples, and so on and so forth. Mark has a reason for this. And we really want to make sure that we don't miss the reason as to why Mark places the story here, because we know that Mark is speaking under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit, who is directing and guiding this entire story to speak to us, to communicate to us something about God's kingdom and what God is intending to do when God becomes king. Okay? So with that being said, I want to basically take a look at three things this morning that have to do with God's kingdom. So we'll do two basic things today. One, I'll take a look at three things that, Jesus, uh, that Mark wants to communicate to us through the teachings of Jesus on the issue of kids. So what we'll do is we'll take a look at um, how one misses the kingdom. Secondly, we'll take a look at how one identifies the people of the kingdom. Thirdly, we'll take a look at how one enters this kingdom. So again, one, how one misses it. Two, how one identifies the people of the kingdom. Thirdly, how one enters this actual kingdom. And then once we're done with that, we'll be, basically take a look at some of the, uh, the spin-off ideas that can be, they're not necessarily essentially taught in the text here, but they kind of, you can, you can ride the trajectory of what they're saying and sort of bring about some implications as to what they mean. So we'll kind of finish with some implications as to what we can kind of draw from what Jesus is teaching here. So first of all, let's take a look at the first thing in verses 13 to 14, how one misses the kingdom. And here's what's amazing to me. Jesus starts off in verses 13, 14. He says this, Then they were bringing the children him that he might touch them. But then we're told that the disciples actually rebuked the moms or dads or the guardians or the people that were bringing these children to Jesus. But then Jesus, in verse 14, we're told that he saw it. He was indignant. So Jesus looks at his disciples with indignation. Okay, This is amazing to me when you look at the story because the little story that we just read, I don't know if you notice or not, but it starts off in verses four, verse 14, telling us that Jesus looks at his disciples with total indignation, all right? Come back to that in a second. Secondly, the story ends with Jesus sitting down with a bunch of kids, piling all over him and hugging them and embracing them and loving them and showering favor and grace. And you would imagine in that context, smiling and laughing and there's joy and bubbling all out of Jesus. So on the one hand, indignation. Flip side, by the end of the story, joy, happiness, embrace, love. Does that make sense? It's kind of an amazing thing when you take a look at the contrast that I think Mark wants us to get here. So the first thing I want for us to notice with regard to how one can easily miss the kingdom of God. They can miss it. And I think this is implied in the fact that Jesus looks at his disciples with such indignation. You can take this idea and sort of spin it out further. The idea of looking at someone with indignation or the idea of looking at someone with disapproval, that's a painful feeling sometimes. Has that ever happened to you? Has there ever been somebody that you know that you really look up to? I mean, if it's something you don't, somebody you don't look up to and they look at you with disapprovingly, you don't really care, right? You know what I'm saying? You're walking downtown and some homeless guy looks at you disapprovingly. You're just like, whatever. Like, you know, because there's a tendency to just write somebody off because you just devalued them and they have no impact upon you whatsoever. But if that somebody who looks upon you disapprovingly is your dad or your boss or your professor or your spouse, it's a whole different ballgame. There's a relationship there. There's something of value there that you don't want to lose. You're afraid of losing that thing. And when somebody looks at you disapprovingly, there's a, there's a, there's a deep unsettledness that arises that says, all is not right. All is not well. 
This is exactly what happened with the disciples. And I would go so far as to say, this is exactly, in an eternal sense, what hell is. Hell is God look, looking disprovingly upon those that have, over a course of a lifetime, rejected him, turned away from him, fell in love, pursued, carried out the relationship that they had with their sinful attitudes, sinful life, sinful heart. And then it meets the disproving look of God. Rather than God smiling, rather than entering into God's joy, rather than entering into God's warm embrace, there is this eternal sense of the disapproval upon one. This is, we see this in sort of a snapshot or a glimpse right here with the disciples. And the reality of what I think is going on here is the disciples, not that they were in danger of losing their salvation, I don't think that's at all what Mark is trying to say, but the reality is that they were in danger of losing the heartbeat of God. What God loves, what God cares about, what God pursues, what God values. They were in danger of losing that. And by oftentimes, by the filters that they were looking at these little kids, we'll get more to that in a second as to what type of value or devalue kids had. But the reality is, is that what was taking place right here is that the disciples were very close to, or in danger of simply losing or missing out on God's kingdom. And in reality, it simply boils down to this. That we are always in danger of missing the kingdom of God when we reject what Jesus loves. Or we love what Jesus rejects. And really when you look at this, or sort of dissect this in your heart, the real problem at the end of the day is that our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are evil. Jesus puts it elsewhere in this way in the book of John. He says, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In other words, the problem with humanity, the problem with all mankind, that's you, it's me, it's all of us, is that all of us have this natural brokenness in our heart. We love things that God hates. And we hate things that God loves. And what salvation is, is God opening our eyes to seeing how wrong we are, how much we have disapproved the things that God approves of, and how much we've approved of the things that God disapproves of, and we repent from that, and we realize how much love God has for us, and that changes us. That's what salvation is. I've shared with you guys a story before that when I was 15 years old, just before I turned 16, God saved me. I wasn't a Christian prior to that. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Catholic church my whole life. I don't ever remember a time not going to church my entire life. Maybe one Sunday. I think I was sick. That was it. But I remember... Uh, sitting in my Catholic church parking lot. My dad had just gotten married about a year or so earlier. I was sitting in the church parking lot with my stepmom, and I was just chatting with her. We were, you know, we were going to two different churches back at that time, and so we'd go to another church, and then we'd go to the Catholic church just because we were so locked in the traditional element that we had to go. And so I remember sitting in the parking lot talking with my stepmom, and she was just telling me about Jesus, about Jesus' love, and about how God wants to have a relationship with us. It's not about the ritual or the ethics or the morality or the rules regulations, and all these other things. It's about God wanting to have a relationship with me through Jesus. And I remember God doing something in my heart right then. I didn't have this, like, miraculous experience. I didn't see lights. There was no, like, sparks going off. And I didn't see a ghost or a spirit. Nothing, nothing like, weird or crazy. I mean, I'm sure that happens to some people, but it didn't happen to me. But all that I knew was the weeks following that, I was different. I remember the next week, I was like, you know what? I want to go to church. 
I'm like, what did I? I remember just specifically thinking, I want to go to a youth group. I'm like, where did that thought come from? Like, I never wanted to go to youth group ever. And I started thinking, like, I want to go to Bible study. I want to go to a lot of Bible studies. I want to go to prayer meetings. I heard something about a prayer meeting. I'm like, I, I kind of want to go check it out. Like, I remember a girl at school. She was a Christian. She used to write, you know, graffiti all over her, like, peachy folders. And I remember just thinking she was weird. And now that I'm a Christian, I'm like, you know, I want to ask her questions about Jesus and all this stuff that she's doing. I remember, like, all these things that I used to despise or was completely disinterested in now were all over my radar screen. I just couldn't get enough of finding out more about who God was and being where God's people were at and doing the things that God's people did, like praying or singing or whatever the things that we typically could look at and say, that's what God's people do. And the reason why that happened is my heart changed. God opened my eyes. I was transformed. But the reality is, is that this is the danger for all of us, is that missing the kingdom, missing God's purposes, is as simple as just letting your heart, or having your heart just go the same course that it's always been going from birth. That where it never desires the things of God. It never meets a transformation by God. And it's not that God hasn't tried or attempted or revealed or spoken or was attempting to get our attention at other times in our life. It's just that for whatever reason, the way the Bible describes it is we were blind or we were deaf or our hearts were hardened. We just couldn't see or we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible uses all sorts of metaphors to identify or describe the condition of somebody. But this, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. We are in danger of missing the kingdom of God when we reject what Jesus loves or we love what Jesus rejects. And that's what we see here. So the disciples reject these little children. Jesus looks on them with great displeasure. It says that he was indignant. Very, very strong word. All right? The second thing that we see is how one identifies the people of this kingdom. Jesus wants us to understand how one can identify the people that actually belong to this kingdom. And this is where Jesus begins to tap into the circumstances that were around him and uses these for the purpose of illustration. Verse 14, chapter 10, it says this, And then Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. So Jesus basically says, Let the children come to me, for of such. The word of such, or the phrase of such, can also mean that the the idea goes beyond the children. In other words, Jesus isn't saying you've got to be a little kid in order to become a Christian. He's saying that you have to have some form of childlike quality, something the way that kids act. There's something about children that Jesus says is synonymous with or akin to somebody who is saved. We sang earlier, um, come to the fountain and drink. You might even kind of use another metaphor to say the hungry, the, the hungry people are the ones that are going to eat, right? So who's going to be satisfied? Who's going to have a good meal today? The hungry ones, right? If you're not hungry, I mean, if you spend your entire day eating Twinkies and cotton candy and junk, all this other stuff, you probably won't be very hungry for a good meal. And that's the point that I think Jesus is making in terms of this metaphor here, that those that will receive the kingdom of God, those that will be candidates or be brought into the kingdom of God, will be those that have some form of childlike quality. And he says, and such belong. In other words, there are others that are not children, but that share the same childlike qualities. So with that being said, we have to really kind of understand what did Jesus mean when he talks about children? 
how did first century people view children? I think it's important to try to understand this. Because a lot of ways, our culture, we have a way in which we view children. I'll give you an example of how there's distinctions between our culture and the first culture, first century. All right, our culture is very um, independent. We value independency. We value people that can do things on their own. We value people that can start their own careers, their own jobs, their entrepreneurs, start a website, start a photography business, become a musician. Uh, we value people that can write poetry, people that can do things on their own. We value those types of people. And when somebody is successful, um, they get a blog, right? Or they write a book, and they show up on Oprah, and somehow they're valued because look what they did on their own in the face of great adverse uh, circumstances throughout their life. We value individual people. That culture valued family. It valued large families. It was an agrarian culture. Now, here's the thing. The way it worked is you would typically have a lot of kids. Now, if you were a mom in that culture and you were inconceivable, you couldn't have children, you were looked down upon. It was a horrible, oppressive uh, value that came and pressed upon the women. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but you know, sometimes... Uh, people reading the Bible, they can look at that and say, that's just horrible that the Bible places such an emphasis upon women who didn't have babies, and it's not nice. And the problem is that we can look as this culture, looking at that culture, and kind of have this snobbish attitude, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis describes it as chronological snobbery, whereby we, we as our culture are like, oh, that's horrible. How can they place such demands upon women that couldn't have babies? That's just horrible. We have the same type of oppressive attitudes in this culture, all right? It might not have anything to do with babies. It has everything to do with looks. So if you're a woman, and you don't have blonde hair, and you're not skinny, and you can't fit in the size 8 jeans, you're undesirable. That's just as oppressive, isn't it? It's just as bad. But that's the way our culture works, and that's the way various cultures throughout history have worked. But the point of the matter is, is back in that idea, in that culture, to have children... It was a blessing, but there came a point when children actually became a fully functioning uh, person that was valuable for culture and for society. But let's say that word that's actually used here in the Greek to describe child is, or de uh, describes the age of a child from birth to around age 12. And what that means is that children in that culture up until age 12 were not yet part of functioning society at that point. In other words, they had no contribution. They were consumers, but not contributors yet. They were basically people that, for the most part, uh, took more than they could actually give back. These were people that, for the most part, had nothing to give. They were a drain on culture, for the most part. Um, and the reality is, we look at this, most people could just simply look at children, unless they're your own, as being insignificant. And that's the way that people, first century, would have viewed children until they came of age. And so it's this age range of people that moms, dads, uh, guardians were actually bringing to Jesus, those that actually had no formalized utility on the culture, they were bringing these to Jesus, and they're asking Jesus to bless them, to lay hands on them, to touch them, to pray for them, to pronounce some sort of blessing, whatever the case is. And the disciples stand there and say no. So you can put it this way. The disciples looked at these little children and said they were in agreement with the culture. And their agreement was they're insignificant. Jesus comes and says, by way of rebuke to them and a look of indignation, they are not insignificant. They're of great value. 
what you have here is a conflict of kingdom values. The world looks at these people, little people, really little people, up to age 12, and it says no value, totally insignificant, of no utility, no contribution, no help, they're worthless. Jesus says they're of absolute significance to me. So here's what Jesus is saying, is that here's how one identifies the people that belong to the kingdom. Now, it's kind of interesting when you think about children. I just want you to pause for a moment and think about children, all right? Children, for the most part, as we look at them, even in today's culture, um, in some ways, there's, there's, there's kind of the same type of sentiment. I mean, have you ever been out to a restaurant, and you look at kids, or look at parents of kids, and you're like, are you ever going to do anything? You're trying to have a nice meal, it's quiet, and all of a sudden, in comes family with five kids, and the kids are all under age five, right? And they're very loud and obnoxious and loud, you know, and annoying. And there's a tendency to kind of get frustrated and aggravated and agitated because they are ruining your space, your sphere. They are not just only of great insignificance, but they are frustrating to you, all right? And this is the way oftentimes cultures, even our culture, can view little children, unless they belong to, your, to yourself. Then they're the world to you. But here's the point. The way that children are and were in that ancient culture, in a lot of ways, can be oftentimes even viewed today, and those like them. Now, who are those like them? Well, you can think about people that are in the culture, in the community, that don't have much to contribute. There is a tendency in every single one of us to basically, there's a temptation for us to, 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 to totally dismiss someone based upon what they have or do not have or fail to have to contribute to us. Let me give an example. If you're a single dude, you can walk into a room, and out of a room of 10 girls, single girls, in just a simple glance through the filters that you have, determine in an instant those that would be suitable dates. Right? In an instant, just by looking at them. That's it. That's it. So you can just simply look at them and think, they're viable, not viable. Viable, not viable. Right? Worthy, unworthy. Uh, significant, totally insignificant. You didn't talk to them. You didn't ask them their name. You don't even know if they're literate. You don't know anything about them. You don't know nothing. The reason why, but, you know, let me go a step further. We can do that even in terms of a business scenario. Okay, let's say that you're a young entrepreneur, and you're, like, you're trying to establish and build your business and build a name for yourself and get your name out there and so on. And you go on these, like, little uh, social you know, things where you hang out with people drinking and having nice little fun times. You are rubbing your shoulders with other people, and what you're trying to do is develop other relationships with other people that might help you advance your career. So if you see somebody else that is not quite as good as you, or maybe by way of reputation you hear that their art isn't as good as your art, or they're somebody that may not add any type of benefit to your business, not only do you not want to go out of your way to meet them, but you actually want to avoid them. Because if they have a bad reputation in a field that you're trying to push your way into, you want to avoid them. They have no utility for you, and you will try to avoid them. In other words, you will take these people that have absolutely nothing to offer you, and you will distinguish them from the rest and push them away from you. Just like the disciples pushed away these little kids who they viewed or deemed as insignificant. I'll take it a step further. All right? Since we're on the subject. Uh, we're talking about even like, for example, church. We can do this even within the church. There's a tendency, temptation for us to walk into a building, for example, like our church, where uh, the predominant age group of people in this church is between 18 to 35. 
if you're older, if you're above that age range, to kind of look around and think, there's nothing here for me. There's people here that are not as old as me that might not have as much life experience as I do. These people are young. There's not much for me to be able to. So what, there's a tendency to push those people away, to omit them, to remove them from your ability because you have just simply dismissed them as insignificant. But before you get frustrated about that, the reality is, is the younger generation does the same thing with the older generation. Just as guilty. And the problem is, is the same. In every single situation, it's the same amongst the disciples. It's the same amongst the single suitor looking for a girlfriend. It's the same amongst the entrepreneur trying to advance his career. It's the same among church people. Anytime we look at somebody and we simply castigate them, push them away, remove them, because we have just simply written them off as insignificant, we are doing exactly what Jesus rebuked in terms of characteristic trait in the disciples. We're all guilty. The point of the matter is, is that Jesus points out something about children and something about these insignificant people that's important. Now, even though the word insignificant is not there in the text, I think it's an important word because I think this is the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. That the reason why they have kind of put these children through their filter and says, let's not bother Jesus with them because we're really busy. All right? So again, I want you to think about this. Here's Jesus, first century. Uh, he's a traveling preacher. He's become very popular. He's got a very busy preaching schedule, all right? He's got his entourage, call them the disciples, apostles. They're following Jesus around. They kind of, at some point, shifted in their mind to think, oh, yeah, we're also bartenders. We're also kind of bodyguards. That's our job. So we're disciples, apostles, slash bodyguards for Jesus. And we've got to protect Jesus from the little eight-year-old kid. We've got to do everything we can in our might to keep eight-year-old kids who have fudgesicles all over their fingers away from King Jesus. He's the king. He's the king. Mighty king. Has nothing to do with fudgesicle, sticky-hand kids. And they omit, Je- they omit these kids out of the presence of Jesus based upon some form of judgment. And you know what? Let me try to give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's just assume for a moment that these disciples were really genuinely caring about Jesus. And they were basically saying, we love Jesus. He's very busy. He's got a lot on his plate. We want to make certain that what he fills his schedule with are things that are going to be in line with the kingdom. Right? So in their mind, they think King Jesus, establishing a kingdom. Kingdoms have to do with military might and advancement of policy and advancement of great, you know, decrees. Um, Little kids don't really fit into that agenda. So in other words... They're insignificant to the goals of establishing a kingdom. But here's what Jesus is saying. You don't understand my kingdom. My kingdom is entirely different than what you've ever dreamed of. See, the problem is the disciples had this idea of kingdom that was borrowing its definition from Caesar or all the ancient great empires of the world. And Jesus is saying, you're tapping in the wrong dictionary. I'm redefining the kingdom. And the kingdom that I'm coming to deliver doesn't look anything like Caesar's kingdom. It doesn't look like any other kingdom that you've looked at or thought of before. Because those people that are last become first. Those people that are marginalized get brought in. 
Those people that are orphaned become adopted. Those people that are sick become made well. Those people that are demonized have demons cast out and are redeemed. Those people that have known nothing but divorce learn to have a softened heart, and they are brought in and they are changed. Those people that are insignificant become very significant. That's Jesus' whole point. It's a radically different kingdom. Now, I was thinking about this as I was kind of looking at kids. And the reality is, kids preach a message. You know, and I was saying the word significant earlier. All right. The word significant, in that word, significant, is, is the word sign. All right. A sign. Something that points to something else. So for the disciples, in their mind, they're like, ah, kids, nope, not significant. They're worthy of nothing. They don't point to anything. They're a dead end. They point to a dead end, right? It's like a hyperlink that leads to that 404 page, right? That's, that's where they go to. They are worthless. They don't advance any career, nothing. All right? Now, I would imagine, like, if a Roman dignitary walked in, they're like, I want to see Jesus. I'd be like, oh, right this way. You know, everybody move. Roman dignitary here. But eight-year-old kid, sorry, go away. In their minds, they pushed them away because they had no value at all of Jesus' kingdom and of the importance that they played in Jesus' kingdom. But Jesus is saying, no, they're very significant. They sign something. They point to something. They portray something. That's what they're all about. They point to something. I was thinking about this, that children actually preach a message. If you listen, Jesus might put it this way. If you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, you'll hear and you'll see the message that children preach. I'll give you an example, all right? Have you ever been out and you've seen kids? Like, if you were able to at some point kind of get past the annoyance. You know, the reality is, if you've had kids before, you really don't get that annoyed by kids. Like, like you know, it's not that big a deal. It's not, it's not so much on the radar screen. It might be a little bit, but if you've never had kids, it's very easy to get very annoyed with somebody who's out to eat and they're not taking care of the kid. But the point of the matter is this. If you listen, like I think Jesus is trying to say, you can hear that kids, children, and those like them preach a message. So think about this. Children... Whenever they run down a hall or run down a sidewalk, run in dad's arms, dad picks them up, there's a message that's being preached. Or anytime that a child uh, walks up to a mom and just sits there and hangs on, clings onto the mom's leg, mom's like talking to someone or texting or Instagramming or whatever, like pulling on a mom's leg, and the child just like gets even more robust, more aggressive, like pulling, hanging on the mom's leg and all these, you know, this child is trying to communicate something. Or whenever a child like asks dad for food or their allowance or anytime a little baby wakes up from a nap and starts screaming at the top of their lungs for mom the message that all of these kids are preaching they're all preaching something the message that they're communicating is this or for example anytime a child stubs their toe or hurts themselves or gets whacked by one of the other siblings and they run and they cry out to mom says you know mom hold me or mom kiss my finger or mom do something and mom hugs the child and kisses them and snuggles with them the message that that child is actually preaching is that even though child's never going to say this but what they're articulating through the message that they're portraying is mom dad you are my source my sole source of comfort my sole source of peace my sole source of provision, my sole source of life, my sole source of comfort, everything. Mom and Dad, you are my absolute everything. Without you, I couldn't live. That's the message that every single child preaches all the time. Now, take it a step further. What about those people that would be typically viewed as cast-offs 
We're marginalized in our culture. People that typically others would look at and just say they're worthless. They just rely on government resources, or they just constantly are taking handouts, so they're just simply feeding off of the system. Now, again, I'm not getting political here or anything, but I'm just simply saying there are those in our culture that, for the most part, we would look at them and say they failed because they have not been successful with their independence. They haven't been able to start a job. They haven't been able to carry on a career. They haven't been able to pay their bills. They're poor stewards of what they have. And so we would dismiss them, write them off, castigate them, view them as marginalized. But they depend upon other people's resources. They too preach a message. And the message that they're preaching, basically, if you listen carefully, is they have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute. And they're totally dependent upon somebody else to help them. I think what Jesus is saying is that if you listen carefully to the message that children and those like them preach, you begin to identify those who actually belong to God's kingdom. Like I said, we have this temptation in us to screen people, to view those that would add something to our lives, to our lifestyle, to our abilities, to our strengths, and those that have nothing to add to us those have no utility for us, we push them aside. But if that's the way that we act towards God, then Jesus says, you don't, you, you don't belong to this king. Because this kingdom is a different kingdom than any other kingdom in this world. And this kingdom is given to those who recognize their total bankruptcy of everything else in this world. They don't have a moral bank account. They don't have a strength bank account. They don't have a bank account of wisdom to pull from. They're bankrupt on every level. And so they depend upon their maker, their creator, their savior to take care of everything. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, if you're a self-made person, if you've lived your whole life according to the course of this world, which is to be independent, according to the reflection of this culture, which is to shine in your independence, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, to make a name for yourself, to become great in your own eyes, in the eyes of your peers, you'll become the type of person that if somebody comes to you and says, you know, you need Jesus, you will feel insulted. Because they think, why do I need Jesus? I have everything. You know, I have a very nice car. I have a good job. I have a house. I have everything I could ever want. But the reality is that comes across as an insult. But to a child, if you were to somehow communicate, you know, on a three-year-old level, like, you need mom, they'd be like, no, duh, I know I need mom. <laughs> like, of course, I would die without mom. Like, I definitely need mom. Like, every three-year-old would be in full agreement with that. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that the people to whom the kingdom belongs to are those that recognize their total dependence upon God. The final thing. I want to finish with, before we move on to the last thing, is this. Is that how one enters the kingdom. Now, like I said, it's amazing to me that the chapter starts out, there's a little story I should say, starts out by Jesus showing his displeasure upon his disciples, and then it finishes with Jesus um, having a lot of happiness and embracing those people whom he loves, these little, little ones. Uh, verse 15, it says, It's truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. I think really what Jesus is basically saying is that children and those that are like them, 
are so significant to his purposes that unless you receive the kingdom in the same way, you cannot enter it. In other words, the kingdom that he talks about is one in which is being given to you and therefore being received on your end. Okay? There's a lot of different metaphors in which the Bible uses to describe the type of relationship that we have with God. For example, Paul describes us as being dead in trespasses and sins. And we don't resurrect ourselves. We need to be resurrected. Jesus describes our plight, our problem, is that we're in darkness. We're so inundated in darkness that we don't flip on switches of light. Light needs to come on to us. Light happens to come from another source. And what the Bible's storyline is that God shines his light on those that are in darkness so that they can now see. Jesus comes to those that are dead in trespasses and sins and resurrects them. This is another one of those types of metaphors where the point of the matter is, is that we are like lost people and God is this loving father with this big warm embrace that wants to give and bring people into this warmth of his embrace by getting down on their level and drawing them in. And he says the way that we enter into that or receive that is by coming to him like a child. That's his whole point. Now, like I said, the problem oftentimes, the reason why we oftentimes don't do this is because we have this idea. When we get older, it's one of the reasons why Jesus says, unless you become like a child, the, the, the contrast is uh, that being of, a, of an adult. Now, there are certain character traits about older people that come into play that are very important, I think, to the storyline. Because think about it this way. There's a tendency or temptation that the older we get, to mistake age for profound wisdom. That the older we get, the more settled in our ways that we become, the less prone we are to be open to new ideas. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, if you're older, if you've ever looked at your life and been honest, to the slightest degree, you realize change becomes more difficult the older you get. It's one of the reasons why sometimes churches can fossilize. It's because... They're run by older people that are unwilling in any way, shape, or form to change culturally, to adapt culturally. They don't like the music. They don't like lighting. They don't like certain types of elements of art. They refuse to change because the older one gets, the more set they get in their ways whereby they think they're wise. But in reality, Jesus would say, they're actually fools. And when someone gets older, it's easy to mistake age for wisdom. Conversely, we're going to look at this next week. Jesus describes there's a story of a man who's very rich. And it's a temptation for those that are very rich to somehow confuse their moral or their bank account as somehow being synonymous with moral ability, moral strength, moral uprightness. The more money you have, the more power you have, the more ability you have, the more you're able to pull yourself out of circumstances and challenges and difficulties because you are strong, because you have power, because you have wisdom, because you have all these things. So you are less likely to see the need of somebody coming to you and helping you. That's why Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom. So something has to happen to the heart that changes it, that causes us to see our moral bankruptcy, our wisdom bankruptcy, our power bankruptcy on every level to see that what we really need is the wisdom from God 
the power from God and the life that comes from God. C.H. Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this. We come into the kingdom by the kingdom's coming into us. It receives us by us receiving it. I love that picture. And the idea is this. Just like a dead man doesn't rise without somebody resurrecting him, just like someone in darkness doesn't come to light without someone flipping on the light switch, just like a child doesn't come into the arms or the embrace of a dad unless dad initiates, Jesus is basically saying that this is how we come. I want to finish up with some final thoughts, and I'm done. First of which is this. And again, kind of gave you my idea, my spin, my exposition on what I think Jesus is saying here. I want to finish with just some final uh, contextual thoughts that I think sort of stem from this. They're not necessarily taught, but I think they can be implied. First of which is this. Jesus was the ultimate man, and Jesus loved children. All right? There's a temptation in our culture for men to think I'm so manly, I don't like kids. You're a fool. You're not a man. Like, like, like your paradigm or idea of manliness is, is something that's, that's not on the same context of the ultimate man. Jesus was the ultimate man. The Bible describes him as like lion and lamb, all right? So he is the epitome of a cage fighter, and he's also the epitome of a very loving, gentle, tender-hearted guy that like sings love songs to people who he loves. He can be incredibly fierce and ferocious and biting, but he can also be incredibly tender and gentle and kind, just like we saw in the text. He starts out with indignation, looking at his disciples, and he ends with hanging out with a bunch of kids, loving them, embracing them, caring for them. So the point that I would make is this, is that Jesus loves kids, so should men. All right? I want to start, first of all, with single men. There's a temptation for young, single guys, and our church has many of them, <laughs> to look at kids, little kids, and think that they are just a nuisance, that there's something that at some point in your life you will end up having to deal with, but right now, you don't want to deal with them. Right? Not now. It's something that maybe like when you're old, like 30 you will then deal with them, all right? The reality is, is that majority of you young single men, you will get married at some point. You will get married. Statistically, you will be married. The ages are getting older every year. It's somewhere around 28 to 32 is when you will get married. So if you're like doing the math, you're like, I'm 28. Like you, you may be meeting your wife in the next six months. You don't know it. The point of the matter is this, is at some point, you should learn how to love and nurture kids because yet at some point you will be a daddy. Jesus loved kids. You should love kids. So a lot of times I'll have be approached by young guys and they're like, what should I do? How can I get involved? What, how, how should I serve? I usually tell them three things. One, get involved in children's ministry. Two, get involved in children's ministry. Three, get involved in children's ministry. Like get involved in children's ministry. Learn how to love kids. Like pour your life out for them. You're like, they don't give you that much back. That's the point. They don't add anything to you. They take everything out of you. Absolutely take everything out of you. But in doing so, in learning to love somebody that has absolutely no utility to you, but for you to give to them, love them, you're being like Jesus. There's another addition thing I'll add to that. A lot of times I talk to guys and they're like, I really want to get married. 
like, what do you want to get married to? Like, who do you want to get married to? Like, I want to marry a woman that loves Jesus and, you know, is going to make a good mom. I'll usually tell guys this. I'm like, look, the reality is, is that if you're hanging out at the bar till 2 in the morning with some girl that's got like five dudes under her arms, that girl may not be the one that's going to end up being the one who's going to love the kids. I'll tell you where to find the woman who's probably going to make a very good loving spouse. She's right now in the children's ministry serving the kids. That's where she's at. I'm absolutely not kidding. That's where she's at. She's back there. And you haven't met her yet because you haven't gotten involved helping out to serve the kids. It becomes an opportunity for you to learn to give yourself away to become like Jesus. You may. You may. I don't think this should be a motivation, but if it is subordinate motivation, that's fine. You may end up meeting your spouse. Let me say one other thing. Don't be afraid to marry a single woman. Dad, have a child. Single moms. Mary gave birth to Jesus prior to getting married. And then was married by Joseph, and then Joseph became the adopted dad. Don't be afraid of that. In doing so, you may be like God, who also adopts. You have the opportunity to play a very valuable role in the life of a woman, in, a wife, in the life of a child that has grown up not knowing a father for a period of time. And you can play a very significant role. Don't undervalue or underestimate that. Don't cast that off as being insignificant because it's very significant. The second thing I would say has to do with married guys, married dads that are here. The reality is, if you are a dad, love your kids. Pour your life out for your kids. Give yourself for your kids. Jesus loves children. So should you. And the reality is that oftentimes dads tend to look at their business because the reality is, is that when a man pours himself out for his business, there's a lot that he gets back. He gets cash for one thing. He gets pats on the back for another thing. He is able to see his work in process for another thing. In other words, there are immediate rewards that are oftentimes given to a man who pursues a career with all of his heart. And that's one of the reasons why I oftentimes think men can abandon their children, even though they're dads. They may be physically there, but emotionally very distant. Well, sometimes men will come back and say, well, you know, I spend a lot of quality time with my kids, but I don't really spend a lot of time with my kids. I think that can oftentimes be a lie. And here's what I mean. Quality time arises naturally out of quantity time. Here's what I mean. Men, I would challenge you to spend a lot of time with your kids, a lot of time with your kids. Do as many things with them as you can. Go on hikes with them. Take them out to lunch. Spend time with them. Read with them. Study the Bible with them. Offer to pray over them. Go for walks with them. I just went on a date with my daughter yesterday. She's going to be a junior this coming year in high school. We've been doing this since she was two years old. I love having dates with her. We do it typically weekly. And it's usually very simple. Like what we did yesterday, I took her out. We went to go, stuff called boba, it's like a tea, uh, on California Street. We went there, got boba. We went for a drive. We went down to Avila Valley Barn. We sat on a chair in the sun and just soaked up the rays. We just talked. It was awesome. Loved hanging out with my daughter. And in that conversation, in the quantity of time, we had quality time. Men, do that. Pour your life out for your kids. And in doing so, you will be like Jesus. Let me say this finally as a church. As a church, we love kids. We love kids. We have a very robust children's ministry. We love pouring out for 
everything that we can for our kids. A very significant amount of the budget in the church goes towards uh, training and curriculum and pouring out and energy and all that for the kids within our church. Uh, there's a lot of kids in our children's ministry on any given Sunday. We love kids. We love to pour out into them in children's ministry. We also love to pour out the kids. That if kids want to come into the service, totally fine. We don't have a problem with that. Some people are like, well, they make noise. Well, of course they make noise. That's what kids do. That's what kids do. It's okay. I mean, the reality is if a kid becomes, you know, to the point where they need some attention, then be a good parent and love your kids and pay attention to them and help them out. But the reality is it's not a nuisance. We have community groups that have kids. My wife and I have a community group at our house. We've got families over there. Kids run around throughout the time. They're just hanging out, laughing, bringing in toys, sitting on the floor. When we do worship, they're just like playing with little trains and stuff like that, zooming them around. It's like it's all good. Kids are beautiful. Jesus loves kids. If we want to be like Jesus, we should love those that are insignificant to the majority around the world. But to us, who understand the kingdom, that which typically is viewed as insignificant is very significant. Second thing, Jesus removed any barrier that hinders insignificant people from entering into his kingdom. Jesus removed any of these things. And I love this because Peter standing there or whoever the, uh, the disciples are that were standing there saying, uh, let the kids stay away. Jesus says, no, let the kids come. And I love this because Jesus is basically setting out a trajectory, a statement saying that those that look at their lives and feel very insignificant, those are the ones that Jesus has come to seek and save. So if you look at your life and you think, I have nothing to offer, I have nothing to offer God, I don't fit in with my peer group, I don't have the looks that other people have, I don't have the money that other people have, I don't have the skin color that other people have, I feel like a minority, I feel like I'm out, I feel like I'm marginalized, I need help. Those are the people that Jesus says are like little children and the outcast I've come for. The third thing is that we have as much to offer God as a rogue child has to contribute to society. This needs to be said. Because lest you think, ah, children are amazing. We just the, Again, Jesus' whole point is that children, as is common, have nothing to contribute to society. But that does not make them any less significant in the eyes of God. But what it does do is it sets a proper order. It causes us to realize that we really have nothing to offer but we do have everything to receive. Final thing is this, is that the reason why God was able to embrace us ultimately, the story starts out with God's, Jesus' uh, frustration with his disciples. It ends with Jesus sitting down with his disciples or with these children and embracing them. The reason why Jesus, God, is able to embrace us as his children is because on the cross, well, Mark is going to tell us by the time the story is done, on the cross, there was a son that was completely abandoned. On the cross, Jesus took our place that we deserve. And rather than being brought into the embrace of the Father, which Jesus has only known his entire life, on the cross, Jesus was broken from that embrace. Jesus was shunned. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. And the reason why you and I can have a confidence of knowing, of being certain of the embrace that God gives to us is because his son lost that embrace, died on the cross. Everything became dark in his life so that we 
who live in a life where it feels like darkness, where it feels like death, where it feels like abandonment, that we can be brought into life, brought into light, and brought into the arms of a heavenly dad who loves us. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a father who has big arms, and he loves to embrace his people. To the degree that you believe, trust, see, that Jesus paid that ultimate price for you, died, rose again for you because he loves you. To the degree that you believe that, that will change the fundamental makeup of your heart. It will rearrange your desires. It will take you from being someone who is self-focused, who is only utilitarian, who only has a view for yourself, who only has a view of others through this filter, this grid of viewing, of asking yourself, do they have any benefit to me? Is there any value to me? Do they have anything to offer me? And if they don't, you push them aside. If you understand that God saw you as having no utility, no value, in a sense, of anything of worth to offer to him, and yet he embraced you, that changes you. It frees you. It frees you to realize the source of your comfort, the source of your joy, the source of your provision, the source of your life, in some total, doesn't come from you, your wisdom, your strength, your might, but it comes from your heavenly Father who created you and who paid the ultimate price to deliver you. We're going to finish by singing, responding, and have the team come on up right now. And we have communion. If you're a Christian, we invite you to partake of communion. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to meet Jesus. That's what we want. We want to see you meet Jesus. We'd love for you to see you meet Jesus because that's what brings transformation. That's what brings life. And that's what brings you joy. I'm going to pray. We'll sing and we'll finish. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, God, that even though we have really as much to offer you as a eight-year-old child with fudgical-stained fingers has to offer culture. That Jesus, your death on the cross accomplished something for us that we could have never accomplished. You bore for us something that we could have never borne. You paid a price for us that we could have never paid. To deliver us, to set us free, to give us life. So Jesus, we ask that you'd help our hearts to become like little children, to trust you, to lay aside all of our other forms of confidence that we place in our wisdom, in our might, in our looks, in our abilities, in our career, in our talents, that we would see that God, all of those things at some point have an expiration date and at some point will deceive us. But Jesus, you don't deceive us. You speak to us truth instead of lies. You sacrifice for us instead of us constantly making ongoing sacrifices for the false gods that we've worshipped. So God, I pray that you would just change our hearts, transform us, so that we'd be like children and trust you. We're going to sing, we're going to worship. I invite you to just meet with God today. Heart feels hardened. If you feel like your heart resembles more of a cynic than it does a child, do you know there's hope for you? There's total hope for you. You don't have to keep being a cynic. God can change that. 
heart's calloused, God can change that. Ask Him to. 